The Offsite Podcast is presented by Offsite Consulting, offering financial consulting programs for small business owners and nonprofit leaders. Find Offsite on the web at auphsite.com. How can you make your organization stand out when it seems like your competitors are innovating faster than you are? According to research from EY, the firm we used to know as Ernst & Young, standout companies thrive in hard times. An EY report stated that the most successful companies master a volatile environment by focusing on the drivers of competitive success. It's the Offsite Podcast, episode number 10. I'm Joe Taylor Jr., joined by founder and CEO of Offsite Consulting, Darnell Suleiman. Hey, how you doing, Joe? Very well, thank you. So we are both founders, CEOs of what uh, a competitor of mine uh, recently told me, and I took it as a compliment, we are boutique organizations. We, we both run organizations that operate in the same space as far larger companies. Yeah. But because we serve clients with very specific needs, we can operate a little bit under the radar by comparison. Uh, the challenge is for companies like ours, things can change really fast. We, we have to figure out how to reinvent ourselves, how we uh, update what we're offering for the market. Mm-hmm. So I thought it'd be a great conversation for us to draw on both of our backgrounds, building our companies and also the companies that we serve. And let's talk, dig into this Ernst & Young report because I found that kind of fascinating that there's a handful of things that companies do in a downturn. And even though all of the economic indicators tell us that the economy is expanding, I think both of us have heard from clients of ours that it's still tough out there, Mm -hmm, right? It's mm -hmm. tough to find money. It's tough to find clients. It's tough to find uh, ways to serve that aren't automatically eliminated or made obsolete by new technology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the EY report, uh, we'll dig into three specific pieces of guidance that they came out with. Uh, the first one is get ideas from everywhere. So they talked to the vice president of a U.S. clothing manufacturer. They do apparel and climbing gear. And this individual said, having as many ideas as humanly possible, no matter where they come from, is a critical ingredient to thinking. And that's the kind of thing that gets you out of a rut, out of a downturn, and keeps you competitive, even when you see other folks kind of climbing past you. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when you think about your business, when you think about offsite, what you know, you come to me all the time with fun ideas, like mm-hmm. things that you want to tackle and take on. Where do you find those ideas? Where do they come from? <laughs> Wow, it's is is true. You a lot of them come from, or some of them come from reading periodicals. So of course, from reading Harvard. Uh, now I listen to Wharton's podcast, and you know, for example, you know, I'm an accountant, but I was listening to Wharton talk about technology in comparison with Apple and Android and how to compete. But as they're talking, my brain is saying, "Hmm, how can you take this data, this information?" And translate it into or model it in the accounting industry or the consulting area, you know, industry. It could be from television. I can be sitting uh, in, in a meeting. And, and, and but the core, uh, I think I think what's what's really the water that's um, springing these ideas up is or are what are the client's needs? Mm-hmm. The needs never disappear. They're always there. So it's, as I'm hearing these ideas and I'm kind of just filtering them, my brain is saying, okay, you know, how can I package it and sell it to the client? Or when we talk about, you know, because you don't want technology to make you obsolete. What can I add to an existing service to create efficiency and reduce costs? Not just for the climate, for myself also. Yeah. <laughs> so that's also what I'm thinking too. And I think that's interesting for small to medium businesses when you think that last piece, which is there's two elements to success. One is, can you manage your costs? Can you manage your efficiency? Mm-hmm. Because if you've determined that you are meeting a client or a customer's needs at a very high level, 
and they're comfortable with the price point at which you serve them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you can find efficiencies within your process, that's right. uh, Those, even if they're transparent to the customer, the customer is really focused on the experience, the delivery. Mm -hmm. Did they get the value that they expect? That's right. right? That's right. And so whether you are a solo business owner, an owner operator, as we've termed it, Mm -hmm. or if you're running a startup or a service agency, that, that secret sauce is the piece of how you can, for the lack of a better term, it sounds like a cliche, but the one plus one equals three. And it dawns on me that we're on an accounting podcast. So there's going to be a lot of pushback on that. One plus one equals three is the piece where your knowledge plus your ability to execute turns into that supreme value for the client. It's always about, oh, I like this. Um, It's really always about creating that unique experience. And even if the model shifts or how the activity was shift, you know, just 20 degrees. It's identifying with that client, but that's always a moving target. You know, as we were talking prior to recording in, 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 in my respective industry, uh, which is, you know, what, 85% of my clients are charter schools, politics play. Mm-hmm. So I have to be, creative <laughs> and getting the ear of the stakeholders who would use my services. And and that's really interesting because the charter school movement itself is a form of this ideation where you have parents, educators, politicians, there are clusters of individuals that have found each other and challenged education mm-hmm. to mm-hmm iterate in a different way. Yes. Right. So what are the, when you talk to clients and they're often coming to you because they need assistance, figuring out how they can match, you know, their financial capability to the mission and the vision that they're trying to push out on behalf of their communities. When they come to you, how do they express where those ideas are coming from? Where, where does one actually come up with the concept of let's rework what a school looks like? You know, when I talk to people um, about business or money, I say, you know, you're getting money to reflect your self-interest, you know, or whatever you, you know, whatever you want to do in life. It's always about your own personal self-interest. So oftentimes when, you know, um, what, when it was particularly here in Philadelphia, what happened was, you know, some parents, some educators, also those who were on the regulator side said, you know what, we can do this better. And oftentimes it was, you know, they said pretty much we're just unhappy with how the service we've been getting. And the teachers may have been exploring other uh, models, education models out there. And particularly, you know, we'll say, you know, look at homeschooling. And, you know, but some people might say, well, we would like to homeschool, but we don't want the children to be so close <laughs> so often to society. So yeah, what else can we add right? to this? Yeah, yeah because it's a trade-off. You're, you're, you're yeah. gaining a lot of control over yeah. the curriculum. Mm-hmm. You're giving up a lot of free time, time and the social yeah. interactions. Yeah. So they'll say, you know, how can we, how could we merge our, our interests from various viewpoints? And a lot of times it's, 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 it comes very organic, you know, the, the, the stakeholders they can clearly define their need. It's when they're coming to me, they're, they're seeking to understand how to take my need and merge it or uh, uh, combine it with other people who share similar interests. And we, and we, you know, we go out there and do it. Coming back to something I heard you say earlier, the fact that Uh, you're looking at periodicals, publications, Mm -hmm. thought leaders. One of the things that I've observed among clients who are successful in their niches, they tend to be the folks that try to adapt a successful way of thinking, if not a specific idea, from one industry to another. So if you're the accountant or the consultant that thinks about an experience that's more like entertainment 
or restaurant, you know, that becomes something unique that you provide. Yeah. If you are a restaurant that thinks about what's going on in the technology space. Yeah, and you, yeah. and, but it, it still comes back to this idea of experience and what yeah. we're actually delivering for our clients and customers in real time. I, I, I like that because that is often overlooked of how, at, you know, as a consultant, you may be in love with technology technology and you say, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take uh, some of the best practice over here in technology and apply it to accounting. And and we saw that with QuickBooks, with cloud accounting, you know. So, But even that actually yeah. extends opportunities because yeah. you saw, for instance, QuickBooks came in and said, we'll take your bookkeeping to the cloud. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily replace the need for- bookkeepers and accountants. Account, that's correct. It, in fact, extended a runway because you're a QuickBooks partner. Mm-hmm, that's um, correct. So you actually have gotten business from folks that said, I'm on QuickBooks. Yeah. I still, it didn't just automatically do all the stuff for me. It that's just right. means that maybe my record keeping went from X number of hours per month to, you know, one quarter of X. That's correct. But I still need that one quarter of X to be done. Yeah. You know, and I still need somebody to do that. And so the way that you add value is you figure out how you can build on top of this platform that Intuit provides. That is correct. Yeah. And, And going to your earlier question that, you know, always striving to redefine yourself. That's it's with innovation such as QuickBooks, uh, high rise. I, you know, you turned me on to high rise. I use high rise for my clients now uh, as customer relationship software. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that right. It's with these, with, with, with this software, these innovations that you're able to first reduce your costs, give transparency to your clients you know, often I have board members say, oh, can I get access to? Oh, cool. It's no problem. But if it's on a local level, no. And it and, and it really comes down to having the ability to um, just offer, not just even so much, because I won't say too much teleservice service, but more service that uh, enables the client to engage you, mm-hmm. you know. But now that we have fresh books, Fresh books and what's the other one? It's one more out there. There's a couple of there's them. There's a bunch yeah. now. There's zero, so, there's harvest. Yeah. Yeah. So now you, you have to sit there and say, now what's unique? Mm-hmm. You know, because we're still at the conversation of redefining and, and finding unique opportunities. And what I am finding out, it comes down to what you're learning on the side as a consultant that adds that unique, that 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 missing one in that three. It's the, I've heard it framed up this way. It's the intersection at which you reside (laughs) as opposed to the street that you own. I like that. And and I think that's what creates opportunities for organizations like ours and for the other entrepreneurs that listen to the show. Mm -hmm. The, the space where you can be the best accounting firm in the world. And maybe you have tentacles that reach out into different kinds of practices. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you are known as the accounting firm that does X, that is the world-class at Y, right? You own that niche and you get to innovate and iterate within that niche and become excellent and world-class at that. Yeah. And then the other piece of it is how well you execute. So uh, a guy I've known for some time now, Derek Sivers founded a company called CD baby. Mm-hmm. He was one of the first pioneers in figuring out how to help independent musicians. CD baby. CD baby. Oh, they're owned by disc makers now. They are now. Okay, yeah. yeah he, okay, cool, cool, Derek cool. actually sold them to disc makers because at a certain point he even admitted that there was a, the, the thing had grown beyond yeah. what he was interested in mm-hmm. running. Mm-hmm. And so disc makers was a great match because yeah. disc makers was manufacturing. That's right. A lot of the product that CD baby was selling. Mm-hmm. Now they're vertically integrated. They're That's mostly right. local here to mm-hmm. Philadelphia. That's right. Just over the bridge. Mm -hmm. Um, But Derek has done a talk at a bunch of uh, places where he talks about take any concept, take any business. And it is the, uh, it it is the equation, the sum of idea multiplied by execution. 
right? Mm-hmm. So plenty of people had the same idea as he did for CD Baby. Let's yeah. do a fulfillment service for musicians. That's right. That's, that's right. an I, That's a 10 idea, <laughs> right? But a lot of the folks that were doing that, and I remember being in this space at the time and uh, uh, working with an employer at the time that was trying to execute on something like this. And their execution was at about like a two or a three yeah. because it was a side project for them. Yeah. It wasn't really yeah. the thing that they, the, the core business of theirs. Yeah. Derek's team executed on a 10 mm-hmm. and just getting the job done. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at what would an organization like C baby be required to do to meet bare minimum expectations, mm-hmm. you'd be, you'd need to take orders online, mm-hmm. take orders over the phone, fulfill orders to retail. That's right. And ship all that product accurately and on time, right? Mm-hmm. So if you hit all of those things, mm-hmm. you'd probably land um at like a 7, mm-hmm. right? But what took CD Baby to a 10 was this extra level of attention that was um if you ordered anything at that time and some of this still lives in their, their legacy, right? Mm -hmm. Derek wrote the best emails that customers would get if you ordered something from there. So if you ordered something off the CD baby website, Mm -hmm. you would get a thing that said, we have just received your order. And now a myriad of angels has arrived to <laughs> gently yeah. wrap your disc yeah. in bubble. And f- at the time yeah. when the internet was still new and we had not yet adopted such flowery mm-hmm. language, it was a real innovation. That's and right. it was a thing that brought the experience from yeah. that seven to a 10. Yeah. And so everything else equal. That's right. Right. That's right. Same thing where we talk about uh, organizations like Zappos, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. what Zappos did was not, new or especially innovative, they sell shoes, Mm -hmm. right? But compared to competitors, Zappos unique elements included that you had zero worry because if you got the shoes and they didn't fit, you just send them back. Zero hassle. That's right. That's right. No extra, you know, you didn't have to pay any extra. Mm -hmm. It completely eliminated any fear that you had right. about buying shoes that you couldn't try on Around in me, It reminds me of L.L. Bean. Yeah. L.L. Bean, I, I, uh, they said, I went camping. They said, if you don't like it, feel free, bring it all back. And I was like, are, are you serious? And camping was okay, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was no uh, hassle refund. Yeah. And I was like, okay. And it's interesting because when I talked to, the my associates, other associates who are employed by me, I tell them our focus is service to our client. Service, service. Listen, try to deliver. If we are wrong, step up, take the blame, cut, you know, uh, and 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 correct it immediately. You know, it's interesting because these are, I guess, business etiquette that has always been around, but to practice them now in this time of fast fast it seems special yeah so absolutely and that's and that's and 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 so that that's also how a business person can segregate themselves in the market or uh if the word segregates i'm looking for but you know get attention because you know you will have a reputation for oh this they'll fix it you know and uh, but I like how you said the intersection because that's really what it is. You know, uh, if all things are equal, is that one uh, a few handful of things that allows you to stand out? Yeah, and you're trying to find your intersection is really what's yeah. going on. Yeah, I like that. And before we head into our next segment, just a reminder that Offsite Consulting provides financial consulting programs for small business owners and nonprofit leaders, especially charter schools, as we've mentioned. Darnell and his team manage vendors, reconcile bank accounts, and handle tax filings while helping clients focus on long-term revenue growth and tax minimization. You can find out more by visiting Darnell and his team on the web at A-U-P-H-S-I-T-E. 
So in our second segment, I thought we would look at the second of the three pieces of advice that came out of that Ernst & Young Mm -hmm. report. Uh, Navi Raju, who is a leading innovation expert, co-author of Jugad Innovation is his book, uh, notes that the best way to experiment is to fail fast, fail cheap and fail often. And if you (laughs) fail fast online in real time, you can get feedback and improve. Now, we hear this a lot from folks in the technology sector where failure I don't know that failure has the same meaning today that it necessarily did when we were coming up. Okay. <laughs> so we'll, we'll start with that. Okay, cool. Because Thank it's, you. Because it's, it's interesting to hear this as a mantra among folks that say, just fail fast. And I always, I think until I got my into my 30s, mm-hmm. I was very failure averse. I wouldn't say I was risk averse. <laughs> I did not want to fail. And failure comes at a price. That's right. Right? So I think when I hear folks say, let's fail fast, Mm -hmm. I feel like what I'm hearing them say is, let's lower the stakes for what a mistake can mean. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) When you hear folks say fail fast, what's your reaction? (laughs) Oh, God. My brain said, how much capital did it take for you to pull this off? But then my brain, you know, as I was listening to you, I said, well, what has your experience been? My experience has been, first, how do you look at failure? What's a failure? You know, is, is, it, is it where, you know, you've actually tapped out? You know, <laughs> you, you, you're on the ground. There's, there's no more money. Your last client has left and now you need to find something new to do or and and or, or, where you pushed out, where you squeezed out, <laughs> you know, um, because also I'm thinking is I'm thinking, you know, failure is good because it first makes you <laughs> real resilient and you'll learn real fast if this are do you have the. Um, the fortitude. <laughs> There's another word, but to to you know weather the storm of being an entrepreneur, a business owner. I when I first started, I started selling as you know the trend in Philadelphia, uh, the shoes, t-shirts, and things like that. I found, and it was good money. It was good money, very low uh, uh, entry, you know, cost, you know, to getting started. But it wasn't really my thing. And this gentleman charged me fifty dollars. I was like nineteen to stand outside his barbershop, which like I'm twenty, I'm forty now, twenty forty two now. So fifty dollars a day, twenty some years ago, yeah. was a lot of money. But he was teaching me this was the cost of business, mm-hmm. and I quit. I was like, I don't want to do this no more. And he watched me walk to a job for a while. And he says, so when are you going to open back up your, your stand? So I think there are lessons that only going through the experience. You hear people, it's like, you hear people talk about getting married. It's, you have to, once you sign that dotted line, it's a whole new reality. And you just can't say, I'm out. You know, and so that's this right here. Now, don't get married often. Like, oh, we had seven marriages now and I'm good. <laughs> but going through that experience, the failures, just teaches you about the ethics of who you are. Uh, not even because, you know, uh, we, we can talk about the the product, the service. But I think first, can you commit to the idea of having your own? And you taking all the risk, you know, and and I think when I see business owners, stakeholders uh, who who may have been in existence ten years, still have not committed to the idea of the you know the uh, if if this falls if if uh, this doesn't work out we're out you know and I think that's important and I think that should not be over you know missed. I think that's the piece where the the advice here is fail fast, fail cheap mm-hmm. and fail often. And I think it's yeah. a very different scope if you think about your career. One of my favorite authors, Laura Vandekam, has written 
uh, years ago wrote a thing called grind hopping. And the advice there was, if you don't know what you want to do for the rest of your life, that's fine. Mm-hmm. You don't have to commit to a huge career when you're 20. Mm-hmm. Just commit to doing project work yeah, or just do a series of short term gigs, tours of duty until mm-hmm. you get closer to figuring out what it is that you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when you're creating a product or a service or launching a nonprofit and thinking about who you serve, the idea of the pivot comes in. The mm-hmm. idea that who you end up serving may be very different than who you thought it would be yeah, when you start. Definitely. And when we talk about failing fast and failing cheap, if you started today and said, um, I'm going to create a consulting company that competes with Darnell mm-hmm. and I'm going to 100% go after charter schools. We're going mm-hmm. to be the best charter school accounting consulting service that exists. Mm-hmm. And six months in, they run headlong into you and they can't get any traction. Technically that's a failure yeah. because they didn't do what they set out to do. But if the founder has the idea that says, maybe charter schools isn't the right thing for me, maybe it's family foundations. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's Mm -hmm. uh, nonprofit uh, social impact or (laughs) mental health. Like you shift gears. I see. Yeah. And so it's letting go of what you may have thought was your calling or your mission and vision, but you shift into something new. Yeah. Right. And I think I see the same thing a lot in technology where some of the more famous examples are uh, there's a, a guy named Stuart Butterfield mm-hmm. has tried many times to launch various games. Mm-hmm. And every time he tries to launch one of these games, he ends up creating another company on the side that does better. Yeah. Than the game did, yeah. right? Yeah. So the game failed, mm-hmm. but the tool called Slack that we use yeah. in our office uh, succeeded wildly. Mm-hmm. Uh, a company he was a part of with, he was married to, I believe I'm telling the story right. He was married to his co-founder at the time, a woman named Katerina Fake. Uh, they ended up accidentally creating Flickr, which became a huge photo service and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. sold to Yahoo. Uh, the biggest story along these lines are the folks at Twitter. You know, Twitter was a messaging service that was built to be the way that employees at this company would talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And the product that they set out to make, they never bothered making because Twitter took off. Yeah. They said, if we use this at our company, other people's will probably want right. to use it That's right. okay. in their I lives. See. Right. Yeah. So, so to the extent that you can't plan for how you react to failure, yeah, that's right. you can approach it as an opportunity to find the thing that will click for you. And agreed. agreed. Definitely. Definitely. I think that's the challenge for folks of our generation and older. <laughs> we, we had it drilled into us that if you failed, yeah. you know, I mean, my first startup failed, like flat out <laughs> failed, like we failed. Right. Um, and that was physically and emotionally devastating yeah. in the dot-com bust yeah. because so, as a society, we'd not seen that before. I don't think mm-hmm. since the great depression anyway. Yeah. And we hadn't had a path forward to say, you could go through this and still bounce back and mm-hmm, still mm-hmm. like recover. And it really was folks who are successful now very much are the folks that lived through that time yeah, that's right. and figured out how to survive. Mm-hmm. And so now as we're into what folks are calling another technology bubble, you yeah. see valuations of companies getting very large. Mm -hmm. Real estate in San Francisco is crazy again. Mm -hmm. Uh, What happens if those valuations disappear? How do folks prepare for a future where the company you founded disappears overnight because all of your customers went away? Yeah. Either they don't want your service anymore. It's been replaced by something newer or cheaper or Mm -hmm. better. Right. So it's that constant feeling that, As a leader, you're analyzing, you're looking at your metrics, you're iterating, you're thinking Mm -hmm. about how you're evolving it and changing it. And you're not afraid to evolve past the bounds Mm -hmm. of what you thought was going to be what you are. Yeah, I think I think even uh, how 
I got into the auditing side of business was really by chance. And uh, it was uh, a firm here, uh, well-known law firm here that's also in the work uh, we were doing and said, hey, you know, here's a niche for you in the market. And by chance, you know, we we um, we pursued it and revenue shot up easy four or five hundred percent. So that is and 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 I and I won't say so much it was a failure. Well, I don't know. I will. I would say the what I thought I would be doing and how great I imagine I would be doing it is <laughs> <it's> not <laughs> what I'm doing. <laughs> so uh, uh, and it's interesting. Later on, I came back and started working in the sphere of the CFO type of work. But it was the auditing that took off. Yeah. And later on, as now I'm on the ground, I've built uh, relationships with clients. They trust me. Then they said, hey, we would like you to do a handle our day-to-day financial transactions for us. So, yeah. And and that's the thing, because you've been able to take the thing that you have become expert in Mm -hmm. and deliver that at a high level of execution, mm-hmm. right? And and I think that's the thing. Culturally, we ask we ask kids who we wouldn't feel comfortable leaving unattended to go drinking, right? <laughs> to make decisions about what their careers are going to be for yeah. the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah. So when I was 18, that's a good point. Good point. Right? I thought that I was going to be in radio. Yeah, I thought I would be a DJ or a producer. And I worked in radio. I moved out of college into radio, did that successfully for a number of years. And then one by one, all of the pieces of technology that I used to do my job were eliminated by technology. Hmm. You didn't need people to run radio stations anymore. They're basically, Hmm. most radio stations are basically an iPod hooked up to a microphone or two iPods and a mixer hooked up to one. And realistically, um, there's very few radio stations left where there is a human that's spinning records of wow. some kind, right? So all those jobs vaporized. Does that mean that that person is a failure because they got laid off? No, no. But by the definition, because they don't have any more money coming in <laughs> from that skill. Yeah, yeah. So you have to reinvent yourself, that's and right. you have to be you know have to be thinking as if you know things may be great, but. Let And we do this exercise in our business all the time. What would happen if half of our clients disappeared tomorrow? Yeah. How would we respond? That's right. What would we have to do next? Right. So it's that feeling of coming back from failure. It's expecting that something that you're doing right now will, if not full out fail. That's right. It will encounter resistance. It will drop. And then what is your plan to overcome it? That's right. So plan B, plan C, all the way Mm -hmm. through all the letters, right? (laughs) That's what I think they're saying when we talk about these are the hallmarks of companies that survive downturns. That's right. Right. So we'll go into the third and final piece of advice we found from this EY report. One more quick reminder that Offsite Consulting provides financial consulting programs for small business owners and nonprofit leaders. Darnell and his team manage vendors, reconcile bank accounts, they handle tax filings, and most of all, they help all of their clients focus on long-term revenue growth and tax minimization. Darnell and the team are on the web at offsite.com. That's A-U-P-H-S-I-T-E.com. Third and final piece for today, and this scares a lot of folks in large organizations, Mm -hmm. organizations that are very risk averse, don't like hearing this, but this is, I think what technology has done to us. Mm -hmm. Right. So the third piece of advice, this comes from um, the EY report. It's very easy to come up with new ideas and become obsessed with them. What the product is, how it can be perfected rather than concentrating on getting it out to market. And you have to get it out to market quickly, even if it's only 90% done. So we've heard this a lot. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good, right? The idea that you could fail, but iterate. The idea is get something shipped, get it to market. If it's not to your definition of perfect, yeah. what is the threshold at which you can at least ship because you can get feedback on that. That's you right. can close deals on that. If you have something, you can sell around that. Yeah. Right. So tell me about some things that you've tried that maybe the idea was 
better than half-baked, but maybe it wasn't fully formed and out of the easy bake oven quite yet when you <laughs> took it to took it to market. Oh wow. You know, me, you know, I try to go into consulting in the area of product development, which I'm not a sales guy. And I I know the numbers, I know tax reporting. But product development, you talk about market, market research. I'm pretty, it's, it's out, as you can hear, it's out of, but I said, I'm, I'm going to go out there and didn't fly, didn't fly. Or even ha- trying to do seminars, which is, n- no. Because I thought I could go out here, maybe talk to some people, they'll take, but, and, 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 and it's not, and, and I'm going to be, open. I don't think it's so much that, the idea was wrong. Maybe I was not the person to deliver the product. And, and that's acceptable. You know, it doesn't hurt my feelings. But it's interesting because as, as as I'm listening to, to it, you're right. Every every uh, mobile app has no problem putting it out there. 75% beta, you know, and we, we want your feedback. But But my brain said, that's what I tell people who come to me. Just put it, just do it. You're going to learn this on the ground. Mm-hmm. First, be comfortable enough with the delivery of a product. So, and, 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 and let's just say in accounting, you're comfortable with recording your bills. Hey, let me come in, handle your check register for you, reconcile your bank statements. You're, you're probably not, you, you still have to develop uh, how to work on a, as a CFO, chief financial officer, teaching a client investments, how to capitalize off their cash flow. You know, um, what do the financials really tell you that type of thing? But that's stuff I had to learn. But if I had waited, oh, I, no. So I, I, I went out there and I kept my chest out and <laughs> listened to the feedback. And we had this in our, our earlier our podcast last week of, are you legitimate? You know, this, this, you could just be talking a good, you know, yeah. uh, you could be a good salesman to yourself, but go out there, try it, see how it feels. I, I, you, and, and, but it, it actually goes back to say, you know, be willing, open to, you know what, this made flop. But also look for it. And, 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 and when a client gives you the feedback, be ready to take it, apply it, and, and deliver a, a, a better product. Yeah, the, there's, there was a thread of conversations I saw online over the past few days. I don't know where the source article came from. There was some kind of study or analysis of contestants on game shows like Jeopardy mm-hmm. and contestants that consistently excel on buzz in game shows are not necessarily the people that know the answers. They're the people that are good at buzzing in because they think they believe that in the period between hitting the buzzer and the time that they have to answer the question, (laughs) they will figure out the answer. And there is a pretty strong statistical correlation with folks that are far better at pressing the button in time. And if they get the answer wrong, they might take a ding. In Jeopardy, you lose the points that you Mm -hmm. accrue instead of gaining them. But because they're hitting the buzzer so early, it turns into a strategy that pays off because they get more opportunities. That's right. right? That's right. And so to that extent, if you apply that thinking to sales, we've joked about this in the past, but some of the best sales presentations I think we've both been in are when clients have told us very specifically that there's a need that they have. Mm -hmm. And we have to think about how we stretch our organization to meet that need. And if you, as a leader, (laughs) have a confidence that you can figure it out between the assignment and the deliverable deadline. That's right. Go for it. That's right. That's the smile, nod, say yes. Yeah, we can do that. Let me, you know, you may have to add some language to say that, you know, this is not one of our core competencies, but let's add it on to the package. You don't want to be deceitful. You don't want to actually snow somebody and say, yeah, I'll completely, if somebody came to me tomorrow and said, I'm going to give you $40 million and make a major motion picture. (laughs) 
Yeah. I don't honestly know if I would take that gig because yeah. I've never done that before. But in that short amount of time, my brain said, okay, I'm going to go over to the Art Institute, see who I know. Like, who you do know? I know that can do it yeah. for 39? Yeah. And I'll get some digital cameras. <laughs> and, 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 and it's interesting that, you know, when you, you hear about, God, I can't believe I'm, this sounds so patriotic. This could have been around the 4th of July. The American I can do. Mm-hmm. But that's really what it is. Like, let's just see. Yeah. And, you know, if it fails, good ride. <laughs> if, it, if it if it takes off, yo, okay, let's make, you know, let's make some more money. And, and, and I think, uh, well, for those of us over 40, we're a little more hesitant, you know, we, yeah. Well, and, and that's yeah. the thing. Cause Lori, my wife and I, uh, Lori is also the co-founder in our business. We talk quite a bit about, you know, how things might've been different. Had we gotten married at a different time, mm-hmm. if we had kids or didn't have kids. And it's kind of each time you, if you ever play the game of life where you were mm-hmm. a little, each one of those little pegs in your car makes you way more risk adverse. That's right. Right. That's right. Uh, I worked in an organization for a while where the benefits were so good that a lot of folks had golden handcuffs. They <laughs> were miserable That's right. That's at work. Right. That's right. Really just walking right. bouts of misery. Yeah. And yet they were never going to leave those jobs because they could not give up those benefits. Yeah. Um, one of the benefits was essentially free tuition to an Ivy League school as long as your kid could get into an Ivy League school. Wow. Yeah. So you would put up with yeah. a lot for that. Yeah. Right. Because that's a big yeah. ticket that's, item that's now. The, yeah. That's the trade off. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of nonprofit leaders come at it from a different sensibility where their risk tolerance mm-hmm. affords them the ability to say, all right, how do I measure my short-term, medium-term, long-term mm-hmm. satisfaction, mm-hmm. happiness, ability to serve, ability to get value? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I think, informs the decisions far more today than it did 20 years ago. Yeah. Which is why I think we see this surge of folks coming out of business school and going right into running their own company. You know, it's, it's interesting for me because I'll go from a meeting at a five fortune 500 client mm-hmm. where things are very stratified, very organized. This is how it's been done for 50 years to a startup that's been in business for five weeks and it's a free for all. There's no one is in those roles yet. No one has figured out the politics radical, yet. Very completely radical. radical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They could do, they could be in a completely different business by the end of the week That's based right. on what the data tells them. But you know what? But remember, during the 90s, that's what we saw in a lot of grassroots business people. You know, you'll see guys who in and 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 out, you know, if this is y'all listening to this on the West Coast, I'm pretty sure. In, in it, or in mid, you know, Chicago is the same too. You have a guy who's selling cars here, uh, concerts coming, the t-shirts, then, you know, the president coming. So do you have your Obama pen? And my, my brain was, as, as you, again, as you were talking, my brain said, you know, that's when you feel the, the, the freest, if I'm saying it correctly, you know, like, yeah. Because if I feel handcuffed, with the client, if I feel handcuffed, I, I can't do this no more. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's, I have, yeah, I would, I'll go sell socks, man. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I think that's the, yeah. the relative freedom that being an entrepreneur gives you is that you have more control over what you're going to tolerate. Yeah. I know we've talked about this before, but being an entrepreneur means that you have dozens or hundreds or thousands of bosses because they're your customers. That's they're right. your clients. That's right. So if you're the kind of person that says, I don't want to work for anybody. I want to make all the decisions. The bad news is if you open your own business, you're making decisions on behalf of all of your stakeholders. That's right. So it's not as easy as I don't want anybody to boss me around. You're yeah. actually opting in to get bossed around a lot more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, the I think the stakes get even higher when you're talking about nonprofits, That's especially right. bringing it back to charter schools. Um, the idea of go to market if you're not ready, you know, with charter schools, I think some of the challenges and criticisms that have come out are that 
do we have enough research to show that this technique or this style is Mm -hmm. going to work or it won't work? And I think we're now in Pennsylvania kind of into this second generation Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. we see existing organizations that are shifting gears, iterating, new personnel are coming Mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. And now we have another wave of charter school applicants Mm -hmm. that have taken what they feel like they've learned from watching that first wave and saying, well, here's how we're going to do it better. Yeah. Are you observing something like that? I, I, as a lay person, it seems like that's what I'm seeing in the headline. I'm seeing that across the board. The the char—I can't name no people, but <laughs> uh, the charter schools that will just say start started ten years ago. I will say in the last three years have all eight tenths of them had a purging, new CEOs, new board of directors, and I think they went in uh, great intent. You you normally find that. They, they didn't understand what the regulatory side, the reporting side. And so, um, you know, they said, look, we need, we, we need all, we need everything new. The, they're still struggling to remain, you know, the, the fight is authentic. Mm. Can we still remain authentic? And that's, you know, cause do we want to have this corporate feel Going back to our questions, because, you know, when we came, when, when we formed this charter school, we knew what we wanted. Yeah. But now it doesn't quite feel like the baby we had well, here's 10 the, years ago. It dawns on me, too, that you have a, depending on timelines, you have a completely different set of stakeholders every four or eight years. That's right. If it's if it's a, let's say if it's a K through eight, mm-hmm. 10 years Totally different set of parents. That's right. Totally different set of, of people. Maybe expectations change. President. Yeah. Governor. Yeah. That too. And because that's what I was thinking first. My, You know, we have uh, Corbett who was out. Now we have Wolf who's in. So how does that play? And like you said, also with regards to the parents now. And charter schools are in the middle school space, shall I say. You know, fifth grade was real sweet. Yeah. A lot of money came, and then the teacher said, look, oh, the principal came and said, yeah, how are y'all spending this money? Uh, because now we, and, and I think, wow, so don't nobody hit, hit, hit us up. I think, the I won't say the first phase was appeasement. I won't say that. But it was, let's try and see how this plays out. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, this is really making some money, you know, the, the regulator said. And there are people making money in this. They're, you know, the children grades are really going up. Uh, they're they're moving now from state or local sponsored schools to the charter. Hmm. How, you know, how is this going to play out? Now they're in the stage of, can we cooperate with other charter schools for our own sustainability? That's that. That's so you get into a new era of collaboration. They're trying to get there because when you see the corporate structure ones, the the uh, mastery, and I tell you, they ran brilliantly. Yeah, you're not you're not going to hear the you know because, but also you have charter schools lack the human capital that you you may see on administrative side. I'm not saying that you know, I want people to talk about the teachers. The teachers are all good, but the thinking, the uh, you know. Uh, what, what you and I have always experienced in the nonprofit industry across the board is the talent uh, from not the program side, but the marketing, the HR, and the ability to find and target people who can uh, drive the mission. Not so much from the program side, but in, in making those relationships. Well, I think it ties back to what we talked about at the top of the show, which was what's the intersection. And so mm-hmm. I think you've got demonstrated success and none, you know, there's no blanket success story, Mm -mm. but where you see pockets of demonstrated success are where you have a charter school that's operated by entrepreneurs that are taking a very business oriented approach to education and delivering results on the metrics. Mm -hmm. Then the debate often comes down to, are they the right metrics? That's right. right. The flip side of that, Mm -hmm. you have 
folks that are coming from a social impact background. That's right. Nonprofit organizations. And as a product of the Catholic school system myself, mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I feel this way that, you know, I, I came up under uh, a, a set of nuns and a set of priests that were probably better at sales and marketing than most people in fortune 500 companies. Yeah. They just happened to, you know, the nuns took a vow of poverty. The, <laughs> the priests at my high school did not take a vow of poverty. So whatever <laughs> yeah. you think about that, they had some nice cars, <laughs> but yeah. that's the feeling of, okay, you have to think about that intersection of mm-hmm. you think that you're a nonprofit, but you have to get good at business tactics to bring the money in to serve yeah. your mission. Yeah. Right. Or you're an entrepreneur and you have picked what would traditionally be a nonprofit as your focus. And you have to figure out how to deliver on the metrics. Yeah. Right. So, so those are great examples. And it really comes down to the, the core of that third idea. You can't think of this stuff as ever being done. It's not no. like the recipe of, the KFC recipe that hasn't been changed in 70 years or what have you, this is always changing. It's always evolving. Mm-hmm. And in your business, there's not a point where you hit that, that level that, Oh, I figured it out. And now I'm done. Mm-hmm. It, it's very much like what we talked about last week, which was when you get the six figures, you're thinking about how to get to seven. Yeah. You hit seven, you're thinking about eight. And we both know guys that are up into the nine, 10, 11, 12, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. it's funny to have those conversations with someone that's got a 12, figure business <laughs> and feeling like they're not doing good enough because they're not 13. Yeah, right. Everybody right. has that's right. that. That's right. So that'll wrap it up for this episode. We're going to hit you up again next week for more insight. Once again, for the offsite podcast on behalf of Darnell Suleiman, I'm Joe Taylor Jr. Have a great week. Thanks Joe. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions stated represent those of the speakers and not those of their employers, the producers, 2820 Press, or any program sponsors. This podcast does not constitute legal, business, or financial advice, nor should you take any action on anything you hear during this podcast without consulting a competent advisor. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or blog. This has been a 2820 Radio Production.